24 through 29. John chapter 20, verse 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you this morning for this time that we get in your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence. We expect to hear something and learn something and and rethink about something, be reminded. Uh, Lord, we expect you to do your work as you said you would do when your word is preached and your people listen. So we thank you in advance for that. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a kid, I always thought, just thinking about, as we get ready and start to think about the scars and the wounds that were left on Jesus, and I just kind of thought maybe I'd seen movies or it had been reenacted, that Jesus, they, when they pounded the, 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 the nails into his hands, um, that it was kind of like through this part of the hand. And I've read some things about uh, Roman crucifixions. It was interesting to, to hear that David foretold that even when that wasn't even around. That was a Holy Spirit thing to have it foretold that way. But they say a lot of times they would uh, tie their wrists. They didn't use the nails. They would tie that. That's what I've heard. For one, the cross didn't really have the top part. It was just a bar, and their head was just kind of wobbly a little bit. Um, We put the top bar on the cross. Um, This is according to historians. uh, But the death wasn't from the nails. The death was a form of, of suffocation. And they would try to raise themselves, and, and after hanging, it was like a slow suffocation. That was the death. Um, uh, people that have looked at it have said it was probably one of the toughest ways to die. And it was a good, uh, allegedly a good deterrent. And that's why they crucified people that way. Um, Uh, Jesus would have been nailed, most likely, and again, this is historical, through this part of his hand, uh, so it wouldn't tear and pull away. And so that's where the nails went. And I was thinking about a song that a guy wrote where he said, he's talking about his walk with Christ, and he's talking about how he knew Jesus died for him, and he, and he, he wondered even why he kept on sinning when he'd been saved from sin. And and the song was called Driving the Nails. And he, he's singing to, to, 
to Jesus. He says, I'm still driving the nails into your tree. You've been talking to your father on behalf of me. There's nothing at these checkpoints I care to defend, but why do I raise the hammer up and drive the nails again? We understand the purpose of Jesus' death uh, was to pay for the sins of his people. He said, whoever comes to me, I will receive. I will no wise cast out. Whoever comes to him, uh, he will save. But he died specifically for the people that he came to save. He didn't die saying, boy, I just hope. Well, who can I pick? I'm not going to pick on anybody. I'll pick on me. He didn't say, I just hope that Pastor Dave, uh, I wouldn't want Pastor Dave at that time. I hope David Hutchinson uh, there in Iowa uh, get saved. I, I died so that David could hear all the facts and David could make an informed decision. Uh, he came for me. If you're a Christian, he came for you, for your sins. You were a particular object of his love. Uh, read Ephesians and think about all of these things about from the, the, the beforehand. He didn't say, oh, I'm glad she's saved. Now I can go to work and help her. No, he came for you. There's a personal salvation. He came for you, Christian. And so he came. He walked in this earth. He did his miracles. Uh, his birth was miraculous. All the prophecies we heard about were miraculous. It was a wonderful, miraculous life. And he came to do that. And then he died. And you think about how uh, in his death, what it was like for those disciples. Some people make the case that his death was actually on what we call Maundy Thursday and not Good Friday. And I've read articles trying to trace uh, Jewish uh, observances and all that. Uh, that's uh, academic. It's interesting. But nobody disputes that's a Christian. Nobody disputes from history that he did not die. He died literally on a cross. He was buried. What we're talking about now are the good news of the empty tomb. So three points this morning. One is going to be delivering the good news of the empty tomb. Second point will be doubting the good news of the empty tomb. And then the final point, number three, is regarding the empty tomb, demonstrating the good news of the empty tomb. So delivering the good news of the empty tomb. And we see Mary Magdalene being the first. You're there in John chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, say this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. At this point, the empty tomb was not necessarily good news. It was distressing news for Mary. The other Gospels say there were other women along with, and they were going there after the Sabbath observance was over, and they were going there to anoint Jesus' body. And at least they were doing something. And all of a sudden, there's confusion. She gets to the tomb. The stone's rolled away. She doesn't know what's happening. She's there. It's still dark. And she ran back with 
not good news, but more bad news. Even the body is gone. We can't even honor Jesus' body. The good news there is that she had someone to run to. She wasn't there by herself. She knew, and there was a group already forming, the group that would become the first church and the church that would spread. Our roots are there. And she had the disciples there. So there was a group to go to in her distress. Just a brief little application. One of the things that is good about the body of Christ is the unity that's there and the way that Christians can be with each other even in our times of confusion and distress. This type of unity, this type of belonging to each other has been looked for and tried by many, many, many groups and people in the world. This is not the only affinity-producing association. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous meets. There's a unity that's there. It's a good thing. It's, a, it's a, not the church, but what happens as people look out for each other and encourage each other and keep each other, um, uh, try to help each other in, in times of, of hurt, uh, has been a wonderful thing for my eyes to see. It's an it's a imperfect picture of the church. Um, take a group of Marines who were in the middle of a fight together and the unity that's there. Uh, what's the bo- motto? No man left behind. And there's some picture that you can even see in those groups when you see the good things trying to be what the church is. And Mary, even in these days, thank God she had people to go to. So she goes running back. And then we see in verses 3 through 10, uh, a couple of the disciples go to the tomb. It says, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then he, uh, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went, also went in. This is John talking about himself, by the way. Um, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Again, the empty tomb is not yet the good news that it was and that they would understand it to be. The empty tomb was something else that was confusing and not so good. Peter and John running to the tomb wasn't a race. Didn't become some test to see who was the fastest. Remember when, maybe when you were a kid and you'd be with one of your friends from school or something and you'd, you'd be running to the store for something. All of a sudden, you'd look at each other and it would become a race and you would race there. Uh, this wasn't like that, but you had a, what we understand to be more of a younger guy with an old guy maybe. Um, but uh, John outran Peter to the tomb. They got there. Something had happened. Uh, the pent-up emotion of Jesus being sacrificed, of their whole lives, them throwing away their business, the family business, uh, forsaking all to follow Jesus. And Jesus dead. And cryptically having spoken about his death and them 
trying to puzzle that, but think of the emotions. And probably it was good, some people say, and, and I, you know, it would be nice to, to know this and, and, and feel it for myself, but some people say in times of great stress, nothing like a good workout. Nothing like that. Just to work out, just to get that. And, and you can see these guys running still early in the morning. What a sight to behold, running to the tomb. They go to the tomb. The tomb is empty. I always say this, um, the headcloth folded neatly. Now, don't always say this, but this is another proof. Uh, If it had been grave robbers, they would have taken everything or it would have been in disarray. John was careful to say what he saw when he looked in, and nobody had been inside there yet. Peter hadn't even gone in. He saw uh, not disarray. He even saw the headcloth folded. Now, my joke always used to be to the kids, see, Jesus made his bed. Make your bed every day. Um, That's not the application from the text. But listen, uh, it was folded. It was neat. It was not a sign of a struggle. They didn't get it still, and so what did they do? Verse 10, they went back to their homes. But now, all of a sudden, it's time to realize that this empty tomb is not bad news, but good news. And it's time to start delivering the good news. And so we see Mary again, verses 11 through 19. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Good for Mary. She got to see that. John didn't see that. Mary didn't see that the first time. Peter didn't see that when he went in. No talk of the angels there, but Mary stays out there weeping and she looks in and there are some angels with some good news for Mary Magdalene. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. We're not going to get into the details. Those are interesting things, and I can give you resources and commentaries and point you in directions. Uh, There's some fascinating things here uh, for a good study. For our sermon this morning, we're talking about the good news of Jesus and Jesus revealing himself to her. So there it is where she interacts with Jesus. We would be as confused as she. You say, well, why wouldn't she recognize him? Well, we think we would have, and if we could go back in time and be there, we would because we knew what happened. We know when he's going to come in. She is thinking the body's stolen. She's seeing these Angels sitting there, maybe she identifies them as angels, maybe she sees them as people, she doesn't know what she's seeing, she has no idea what's going on, she just knows that 
even if she could find his body, she'd go get his body and at least give him a decent burial. And emotionally, Mary Magdalene, who's been saved by Jesus, who loves Jesus, one of the many, many women who were there as part of the group that were with Jesus. And if you're not expecting it and you see somebody you don't expect to see, you're all startled. We, we all are. You see these stories of like a soldier who's been serving overseas and then he comes back and he's in like the kids' school mascot and they have some game and he takes that off and, and somebody's filming it and you, you see the kids see their dad or their mom and, and you see the surprise. My hair used to be about as long as Bruno's back in seminary. I had the long hair on the Bruno uh, in my seminary days. And uh, just like Brian, uh, he, my, my kids had never seen me otherwise. I got this job at UPS, and I had to shave off the, the, the goatee. And it got pretty hot there, so I, I got me a buzz cut to go along with my steel-toed steel, uh, boots to go in there and, and work at, at UPS. I got my hair cut, and Dr. Chamblin said my grade point average was going to fall because I'd be like Samson with my hair cut. And so the professors were making jokes about it. But I walked in, and one of my daughters who couldn't, if she'd ever seen me, couldn't remember that because she'd been just a baby. And I walked in, and she recognized me, but she didn't recognize me. She was scared of me. And everywhere I would go in the house, she'd hear my voice, and I'd say hi, and I'd want her to come, and she would follow about two feet behind me. I'd go upstairs, she'd follow two feet, just looking to see because it was me, but it wasn't me. And this is kind of what Mary uh, did. She saw the resurrected Jesus... It was him. It was a real body. It was really him. And she knew it was him with the voice and the interaction and him calling her name, but it was confusing. And he gave these words to her to reassure her. And finally, she goes back to the disciples in verse 19 because he told her to. And and she went and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I've seen him. Not I found his body. Not I found who took his body. I have seen the Lord. And she talked about her verbal interaction and she knew it was Jesus. She would have known. She announced it. The disciples then announced the good news of the empty tomb. Verses 19 through 24. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, them his hands in his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So a couple of points about this portion of our text. They were meeting together. They were afraid of persecution. It says, for fear of the Jews. Well, what? Afraid of themselves? They were Jews. Uh, We've been through this, but understand when, when they're talking about the Jews, they're talking about the establishment, the leadership, the Uh, governing authorities, the ones who had the power and had the people under their power. They were afraid of those religious authorities 
who were there because it was kind of a bad day for them too, those Pharisees and Sadducees and, and people that had Jesus put to death because they also were missing a body. Where was the body? They put guards around. They didn't want the body stolen and people to say that. But Jesus was gone. Uh, this had not gone according to their plan. The plan was kill Jesus, uh, cut off the head of, of, of the snake, in their, in their opinion, uh, of who Jesus was, and, and that, would, that would end it. But it wasn't ending because something had happened, something supernatural. So uh, maybe they would have to start killing the disciples. They'd already said they would kill Lazarus, right? We talked about that last week or the week before. They were willing to do what it took. They just didn't know about the will of the people and how much they could do. This is not different than any secular government that wants power and wants to stay in control. And so the disciples were meeting and they were afraid for themselves. They had the doors locked. These Jewish leaders had had to come up with the money to buy a new curtain for their temple because when Jesus died, that curtain separating the Holy of Holies had been ripped down the top. They had to come up with a story. They had to get a spin meister out there to to answer the questions and tell the stories and what really happened and it really didn't tear and what does this mean. They had all these things that had happened that they couldn't explain, but they had to stay in control because that's how they were oriented. So here's the disciples in this room with a locked door. And Jesus walked through the walls to get to them. Jesus didn't have the key. It doesn't say he knocked on the door and said, it's Jesus. That happened in Acts with Peter. Jesus came through the door. Wow, a real physical body that could do that. Jesus' body was different. You see Jesus traveling from place to place uh, with people and, and away from people. Physical body, uh, what's all of that? That's good for you as a Christian to to look and study and think through these things. But he walked through the wall. I like how uh, C.S. Lewis put it, and I don't know, uh, don't remember where. If Steve was here, I could ask Steve. He would tell me, he would cite chapter and verse from the book. But Lewis described Jesus being able to walk through the wall and come into where they were um, as not Jesus being like... um, a spirit that could go through, like uh, I've used this illustration before as a kid when you watched Casper the Friendly Ghost and, and he could go through the keyhole to get in and then come back out and there he's Casper again, he's all that. That's not how Jesus did it in a, a way. Jesus did it with a real physical body that was actually more real and heavier than matter. Uh, Lewis described it as throwing a stone into water. Water is real, stone is real, stone is heavy and it can cut right through it. And Jesus uh, came into where they were in, in that room. And they'd heard rumors. They'd heard Mary's assertion that he was alive. But now they got to see for themselves. And Jesus said to them, here's my hands. Here's my side. This is really me. And they were glad. They were happy to see him. All of a sudden, the empty tomb meant a living Savior, and it was good news. It says in verse 20, they were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said again to them, he keeps saying these things three times in this text, peace be with you, peace be with you, peace be with you. Jesus came to bring peace to his people. 
peace on earth, goodwill to men. He said, peace be with you. And it's amazing and it's interesting to me and I think it's important for us at Christ the Shepherd that what did he say? Even as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. There is a commission for Jesus' disciples. He talks about this forgiving sins and not forgiving sins. That's connected to where um, Peter uh, declared that he was the Lord and he said, upon this rock I'll I'll build my church and he talked about uh, the keys to the kingdom. And all of a sudden you see the church in here again, him setting up his church that would be on the world. There's so much church stuff in these passages. You don't even have to look deep to see that. And these are shades of that keys to the kingdom. If you don't have a high view of Christ's bride, the church, you should have. So Thomas wasn't there. Where was Thomas? What do we know about Thomas? Doubting Thomas, we call him, because of this passage. He's known as Doubting Thomas. What do we know about Doubting Thomas? Uh, People say he gets a bad rap for this. He probably does. If I met him in heaven, I wouldn't say, hey, Doubting Thomas. I would say, hey, Thomas, (laughs) Um, because we're all doubters from time to time anyway. He wasn't there. Maybe they sent him out for food. Maybe he was delayed in getting there. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there. We know he wasn't. We know in God's ultimate purpose, uh, there was a reason for him to be gone. We don't know what that specific earthly reason was. Thomas is gone. John has, uh, he doesn't have a whole lot about Thomas in Scripture for us to even do a character sketch on. But the two things we know from John is when Jesus, in John chapter 14, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. At funerals, we Christian funerals, we say this. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And Jesus is telling the disciples that. Well, Thomas uh, asked the question that probably a lot of them, if not all of them, were thinking, Lord, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. We need a little more. I like people like that, that will ask the question. He asked the question. Then when Jesus says, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, and the disciples said, if you go, you're going to die. Don't go to Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. And Thomas said, and I, I could, maybe it's just the way I read the words, or I've known people like this. They go, hey, I'll just go and die with you. And I kind of like that gallows humor. I like that kind of sense. I think if Thomas was in your midst, and he was one of our group, you would you'd probably like Thomas a lot. Likeable guy. He just wasn't there when Jesus appeared. And so Thomas says, listen. They said to him, they said to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. Mary comes back and says to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. The disciples say to Thomas, I've seen the Lord. And they come back having seen the Lord. How about us? How about us here in 2022, Christ the Shepherd Church, Christians? You see Jesus commissioning of his disciples. And he said, so send I you. I didn't look in the hymnal. I was going to look ahead and see. We used to sing it in the Baptist churches in Iowa, at least. As the Father hath sent me, so send I you. 
so send I you to labor for the master, so send I you. Uh, We are sent in the same way that Jesus was sent, not as sinless people, but Jesus was sent to save the world and to proclaim himself as the way, the truth, and the life. We are also sent to tell people, Jesus is your only hope. Jesus is who saves. Jesus is what you need. Once we work it through and we come to faith ourselves, we get to tell others. It's a true statement that you are either a missionary or a mission field. That's the truth. And we get to say something pretty simple. Not, I'm, I'm so smart, I'm such a good person. Oh, I'm this, I'm that. No, I've seen the Lord. That's our message. I've seen the Lord. I can tell you where he is. Didn't the woman at the well do the same thing? Come see a man who told me everything about myself. And they came because of her, because she'd been, I guess, kind of a, kind of a bad woman around town, and, and they knew her. She, she was one of the local characters. They came uh, because they knew her and because of what she said, but they stayed because of what Jesus had to say. Love that story. Love that woman at that well. Good for her. That's us. I've seen the Lord. It's one thing to recount the good news of the empty tomb to each other as they were doing. We all need encouragement, but what about those among us who doubt? So second point, and we'll move fast here. Doubting the good news of the empty tomb. The religious leaders. Not good news to them. They doubted. They saw Jesus as their threat. They wouldn't allow for the resurrection. Everybody else allowed for it. You'd think an honest person would say, you know what, if there's something to this, I better fall in line. But people blind their eyes willingly. They won't believe because they don't want to believe. Uh, um, uh, who was the man? Some famous philosopher. His name's not on my tongue. But he said people prefer to believe what they prefer to be true. And I think that it's also the case that people prefer not to believe what they don't want to believe. And we blind our eyes to things. So they were doubters, but they were doubters of a different kind. Thomas, on the other hand, it would have been better for him if this was true, but he still takes a practical route. That's who he was. He said, unless I see the scars, unless I put my hand in his side, I'm not going to believe. And in the Greek, that's like a strong negative. It, it could be best translated, and maybe in your translations it does that. I will never believe unless I see with my eyes. I will never believe. I need physical proof. I need Jesus in front of me, real body, real scars, real Jesus, real voice, real real stuff, or I'm not going to believe just because you guys tell me. Jesus had only shown them his scars. Thomas said, I don't want to, to see him from a distance. I want to touch him. It's not that Thomas didn't want to believe. It sounds more like Thomas didn't want to allow himself to dare to believe. I'm sorry, Christianity is too good to be true. It is too good to be true. And we all know if something sounds too good to be true, what's the rest of the phrase? (laughs) It isn't. You're going to get let down. And we've been suckered by, uh, oh, by everybody, name the usual suspects, you know, uh, ex-boyfriends, girlfriends, ex-spouses, politicians, uh, football teams, whatever. We've we've put our beliefs in. And, and it's been too good to be true, and it's not true. We don't even want to believe 
Um, maybe that's how Thomas was thinking. I can't believe unless I actually see it because this is too good to be true. Some of us have been like that. We've been burned and hurt so much. We have a hard time believing. Now listen, maybe this is going to be your favorite verse in the Bible, your favorite story. This one used to be the woman at the well for me, but this one's starting to win now as one that I just go to and need. This is Jesus in Mark chapter 9, right after the Mount of Transfiguration. They brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to that father, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, great words, memorize these words. I believe, help my unbelief. And you know what? That was good enough for Jesus, wasn't it? And Jesus did what? When that man said, I believe, help my unbelief. He's admitting doubt even in his belief. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mutant deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. What you need to hear is your doubting is not a sin, Christian. Your doubting is not a sin. Weakness, and Jesus knows your frame. He remembers your dust. It's good when you have a moment like Thomas did, that there's a church to back you up. The church still invited Thomas to their meeting. They didn't say, oh, you don't believe us? Excommunicated. Get out of here. No, the next Sunday, on the eighth day, the way they talked about it, so it was the next Sunday, they were meeting again. And who was there with them? Thomas was there with them. They allowed for a doubter to come in. And why wouldn't they? Peter the denier was there with them. We take our turns. We help each other out. We point people to Jesus. Jesus comes in in the, in the midst of it. Uh, so here's Thomas there having said that. Thomas welcomed. They didn't say, go hang yourself like Judas did, you big uh, unfaithful man. Doubters. How fallen people treat their fellow fallen people when they doubt. Uh, a lot of times we do make allowances for each other because we know ourselves. and We know there but for the grace of God go I. But how did Jesus treat the doubter? Well, demonstrating the good news of the empty tomb. Verses 26 through 29. Eight days later his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, here comes that Jesus, heavier than matter, walking in, came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, because that's what he liked to say to people, because that's what Jesus came to do for you and me, his people, bring peace to us, to our hearts. He says, peace be with you. Then all of a sudden he looks at Thomas, and I wonder what Thomas was thinking. Oh man, I hope nobody, nobody could have told him because I was with him. He doesn't know about me, does he? And he was doing like the rest of us, just kind of Sort of like men's group when I say, who'd like to close in prayer? <laughs> I say, oh, made eye contact with you. <laughs> it's like everybody wants to pray, but 
Nobody wants, you know, it's, it's one of those things. We make our eye contact, we pray. Here's Thomas going, do, 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 do. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, Thomas, before we get on with this, I want, I have something for you. And he spoke to him by name with knowledge of Thomas's remarks. Does Jesus know about you and your doubts? Of course he does. Does he single you out in a good way? Does he go after you? Uh, you doubting person who he loves so much? Of course he does. He loves you so much, he's going to restore you. He's going to address those doubts. If you have doubts, uh, that's not denial. That's just me saying, God, help me. I believe. Help my unbelief. That's good enough for Jesus. And he said, Thomas, come here. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He wanted Thomas. He'd called him before to be his disciple. He'd He'd sent him out. He, he'd, and, and when he sent the disciples two by two, he taught, 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 and he had to call them again. Come on, Thomas. Come on, Thomas. I love you, Thomas. Come on, Thomas. Pretend your name is Thomas when you're doubting. And pretend Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever and see if he doesn't love you even when you're struggling. Thomas needed something special at the time. And Jesus sought him out. Does Jesus know about you and your doubts? Does he single you out in a good way for restoration? Can you come back? Yes. And the disciples then, addressing that, Thomas's reaction was what? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And then, according to tradition, Thomas took the good news of the gospel to those beautiful Indian people. History looks, and there's, there's uh, places named, it looks like he went to India to share the good news with people. His doubts, his, his uh, message, and his, his being sent went there. Good for Thomas. Good for Thomas. John, who was there, did many things, including writing this gospel. John was also sent uh, to, to, to deal and, and to talk about with his life uh, the doubts that people would have and to be an ambassador. John's goal was to tell people about the resurrected Christ and the salvation that is in Christ. The next two verses of our text, and that's the last two in, in chapter 20, and we go to our conclusion. But John wrote this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you, reader, you, sermon listener, you, Christian, these are written so that you, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Uh, John was committed to this. Thomas was committed to this. Peter was committed to this. James was committed to this. Uh, they were transformed. They saw the risen Christ. Among them were doubters and deniers and things, and Jesus came along and restored them because he'd called them and they were his, and he sent them out and let them do great things for him. How about us? Our witness to those in our church who are doubters, struggling emotionally. Our word is Jesus' word. Peace. Peace be to you. We want to pray for you to have peace. We want you to, to work through and see Jesus, and we want you to not have to struggle with your doubts. Us as a church doing Jesus' work, 
the goal and the hope is that knowing people by name, individualized care and prayer for people, pointing them to Jesus. And the goal is the goal that was stated right here in this same context, that people may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that my, by believing they may have life in his name. We want the best for people. And the best for people is to be right with God, to have their sins forgiven, to have a perspective. Um, maybe uh, not to have every single thing in this world, no, no prosperity gospel here, no, no great riches on this earth to distract you from God, no, no uh, super uh, six million dollar man type health. Uh, maybe, maybe that, but, but to have a perspective that's a divine perspective and to know you're on your way to heaven because of what Jesus did. Jesus wanted the best for Thomas. Jesus wants the best for you, Christian. Application, conclusion. Easter week is a good week for self-reflection once a person has first reflected on Jesus. Take a good look at the cross. Take a good look at Jesus' purpose. Take a good look at the empty tomb. Get all that down. Then, Then take a look at your life in relation to that. First question you ask yourself, am I in Christ? Am I really in Christ? Did that death on the cross apply to me? How do you answer that? You answer that by saying, do I see that my sins leave me out of sync with God and that I deserve God's wrath for the way I've knowingly, willingly violated what God has said not to do? For the way I've knowingly, willingly ignored what God said to do? Am I out of sync with God? Uh, Am I in need of the cross? Ask yourself that, and then say, do I trust in Christ as my Passover lamb who took my sins upon himself? And do I believe in the resurrected Christ as the one with the power over sin and death? Romans 10, 9 through 11. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Next question you might want to ask yourself if you've established that you really are a Christian is, what is Jesus' stance toward me when I struggle as a Christian? In this case, Thomas, with that. What's Jesus' position toward you then? His position toward you as an unbeliever who is coming to him and, and repenting and, and putting your faith in him is to save you. But how about afterwards? No condemnation, only restoration. No condemnation, Christian, only restoration. No condemnation. You can condemn yourself all you want, and you're wrong. Jesus doesn't do that. He saved you. He died for you. He's seeking to restore you. You would do well to regard Easter as kind of a spiritual New Year's Day. Make it a spiritual New Year's Day. New Year's Day, I set my goals for exercise, for weight loss, for what books I want to read, for finance. I set all these goals. I do it. I love love New Year's Day. I love the new calendar. Some of you guys don't because you're wiser and and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and I haven't joined you in your cynicism yet. But look at Good Friday as a spiritual New Year's Day. Don't be cynical about that one. 
Boy, Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. Wow. Revisit that. And if once a year the whole world comes together and all these churches that may not even be Christians anymore, but they, they do all this stuff for it and it's in your consciousness, well, say, good, I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll do something like that as a Christian. And I'll remember that Jesus died. Maybe, um, here's a practical suggestion. Maybe as you remember that Jesus paid for your sins and even though you're doing them, why not pick something out this year and you say, I'm going I'm to really pray for this, this domino in my life because this is the one, this is what they used to call besetting sins. This is the one for me. And I'm challenging you right now. Think of some sin that besets you. I just listen, I'll, I'll read what I wrote. Maybe it is doubt. Maybe it is a soul-harming habit that comes in between you and your fellowship with God. It may be bitterness against a specific person, possibly your wife or husband. It may be a grudge that you have nursed for a long time. It may be sloth. It may be greed. It may be stinginess or poor stewardship of what God has trusted to you. It may be something like that. You go, that's the biggie. I know the others are just as serious, but that's the biggie that always just gets me. And I'm going I'm to say, I know, Jesus, you died for the others, but I want to focus on you dying for that one. And I'm going to ask you, by your Holy Spirit's help, to help me work on that one and pray for that one and see about that one so I can glorify you better so that I don't get defeated by that one every single stinking time. I'm not asking you to make a resolution. I will not fill in the blank, whatever it is, or I will do this. I'm not saying it's a resolution, but I'm saying spiritually treat Easter week as a, as a, as a kind of a thing and, and make a goal to look and, and then look back next week in, in your journal and say, this is what I wrote down. Here's what I prayed for. Here's what I shared with my spouse, maybe, or, or, or my friend or, or somebody. And here's what I worked and here's what I see. If and when you fall in that area, ask God to remind you of the cross and the empty tomb and God's work on that behalf. So it's, you're not taking that on yourself to work but, but, but when you sin, boy, we come and we confess. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so we work at it. We can kind of work as if the Jesus who was powerful enough to save us will help us work through these things too. Personal relationship you have with Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit. The word of God is your guide. Constant presence in church, worshiping God with your fellow redeemed sinners reading God's word, thinking about it. We used to say meditating on it. Take these means of grace and see uh, what, what God's going to do in your life as he is sending you out to the world to tell that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And see what happens over the course of the year. Reevaluate next spring when Good Friday and Easter roll around. And you say, man, I've had another year of living for Christ in a fallen world. And we do this all the way to heaven. And then, boom, sins are gone. Amen. Let's take what we've heard. Let's think about ourselves as a church, as a community, which Jesus worked with there. Let's think about what we've heard about Jesus being our forgiving God. Let's think about these things that he talked about, about telling people about Jesus. Not just hearing it, but but telling. And let's take what we've heard and let's pray. Now we'll go to the Lord's table. Lord, thank you for 
your word. Thank you for your appearances. Thank you for Mary Magdalene. Thank you for Thomas. Thank you for the rest. Thank you for showing yourself to us. Thank you that we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that the power of death has been 